Hello everybody, I'm Dwayne Mancini and welcome to another episode of MedTech Money brought to you by Project MedTech. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. If you enjoy this content, don't forget to check out our other podcast by searching Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. Project MedTech is an interview-style podcast where guests share stories, advice, pitfalls, trends, and innovations. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Lean RAQA. Michelle Lott and the Lean team help clients recognize regulatory and quality issues aren't a burden, but they are strategic advantages when used properly. These experts strip away misdirected activities so you can focus on what really matters, winning in the marketplace. Check them out at leanraqa.com. In this episode, our host Giovanni Loricella and our guest Fionn Lahart from One Projects discuss becoming an entrepreneur, the BioInnovate program in Ireland, the product they are working on at One Projects, how he met his co-founder, how they deal with running a company while being located in two different countries, the naming of their rounds and why they did it the way they did, how did he raise capital as a first-time entrepreneur, the importance of a slide deck and never overcomplicating it, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Fionn Lahart. Thank you so much for being with us here today. This is the MedTech Money podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And very excited about this one, not only for the announcement of your recent capital raise of which we'll get into, but also I've personally been able to watch the growth of one projects in your company and want to throw out a shout out to MedTech Strategist and their amazing conference that's held each year in Dublin. And I think this year it's going to be held at the back half of April. But you and I met in right across the street from the Shelbourne in St. Stephen's Green. And um, ever since then, I've been watching all the press releases and watch your growth. So to hear this capital raise finally come out and have you on the podcast, I'm incredibly grateful for your time and looking forward to this wonderful entrepreneurial story. So before we get into this, why we're here, I've talked to MedTech entrepreneurs and investors around the world. And I've discovered that there's no silver bullet or specific formula or magic about how to raise or invest capital in medtech. And I'm sure you're going to help demystify that right now for us. But the goal here is to extract insights to demystify the process and help those who can benefit from the information now and also for future generations of medtech innovators. So the audience listening in right now is certainly a mixture of novices and experts. However, I'd like to share your stories and advice with what I imagine is that first time founder or CEO and has no clue of what lies ahead of them on this journey of raising capital. And I thought the best place to start is learning from experienced professionals like yourself. So Fionn, you and I are here today. The major reason why is there was a press release not too long ago about how one project has successfully raised 17 million in this series A2. And we're gonna break all that down. I want to hear what it's like to raise capital being an Irish company, 
Are you looking across the pond? Are you looking in Europe? Are you looking only in your backyard in Ireland? But before we get into all that, and also obviously who you are and one project's technology that you've helped develop over the years, I have a few open-ended questions that I'd like to ask first. The first one being, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup? Why or why not? Or would you add anything? Yeah, thanks. Well, first of all, thank you, Giovanni, for having me on the podcast. I've been listening to these for, for quite a while, so it's an absolute pleasure to be to be speaking to you, uh, especially, as you say, look, our relationship goes back a few years. And uh, yeah, I really hope this MedTech conference does go ahead uh, this year and, and, you know, maybe we'll get to meet in person again. So look, thanks again. Um, to answer your question, are people in Money the Lifeblood? Yes, absolutely, they are. And I think, you know, they're obviously interlinked or intertwined, I think maybe starting with with people first, because I think it, it changes with the stages of the company, but, you know, people at the very beginning, you know, at the founding stage is incredibly important. Um, so, you know, my co-founder is Christoph Hennesberger, who, you know, you also have met based out of Munich. I think that was incredibly important, uh, fruitious also, you know, that we met, you know, so some founders will obviously go it alone, but I think, you know, that partnership is, is really key, be it, you know, maybe two or three or four founders, whatever it may be. So from a people point of view, you know, right at the beginning, there's got to be a partnership there, something between those founders that, you know, they're going to work together for a long, long time. Um, of course, and then as the stages grow, so the people, you know, hopefully, you know, your company is growing and your team is growing. You're, you're, you're really only as good, I think, as, as your team. So, you know, how your team performs collectively um, as well. So as you grow and maybe you attract in that money or that first bit of money, you know, that enables then you to hire more people or attract more people in. So I think, you know, people and money, they're intertwined, they're chicken and egg, whatever you want to call it. You know, one really can't exist without the other. But I think right from the very beginning, it's right at the founding stage, it's, it's got to be about the people and there's got to be something there that's going to, you know, last through, you know, at least 10 years, probably. And I'm going to have fun with this next question. It's stereotypical, the luck of the Irish. My, my next question for you is, do you believe in luck and being a medtech entrepreneur, whether it's the actual technology itself, going after the market, raising of capital, building an organization, whatever it may be, but within medtech, how much does luck actually play into the success of medtech, do you believe? Yeah, I think, I think it does. I think it does have a part to play for sure. Um, you know, it, look, it comes in many factors, but I mean, I can give an example of, of just maybe timing. You know, for example, I can give an example of our, our Series A round. Um, you know, we've been putting that together and we're almost uh, closed. We're almost at the finishing line um, around March 2020, right? So when, you know, all of a sudden the world, you know, came to a halt about, you know, what's this pandemic? So, you know, we were really lucky around that time that we, we already had our consortium together. We were, you know, we were at the closing stages anyway. Um, but I did hear stories, for example, of the pandemic, you know, scuppering, um, you know, some financing deals because people weren't maybe far along, whereas we were, we had, we were pretty much there. We'd met all our investors um, who are not just based on Ireland, by the way. So, you know, there's an element of luck there, just in, just in timing that we had all of that done right when the pandemic hit, because, you know, as, as you probably know or recall, everybody just paused for like a month or two months or three months or whatever it was um, around that time. So I, I think luck absolutely plays a part, um, certainly when it comes to, say, opportunities. I, I don't think, you know, if it passes you by once, it doesn't mean that it can't come back again. I think one thing you, you try and do is, you know, 
create your own look in a way, or at least create, you know, avenues of opportunity. So, you know, create your own look is a little bit hard, hard to quantify a little bit, but, you know, if you put yourself in a good position to raise money and it doesn't happen for X or Y, a pandemic hits or, you know, whatever, you know, you're still in that good position. You can still talk to other investors. There's, there's still other opportunities there. So I, I think absolutely look will, will play a part. Um, that's just say on the investment side, I know that's, you know, a lot of our conversation today is around investment, but also market. I mean, the market dynamics can completely change. A clinical trial could completely change the outcome um, or where you're going with your technology. I, you know, I, Previously, I remember listening to um, an entrepreneur talk about a, a journey. This was post-exit. They'd had a really successful exit, but he spoke about at one point during the journey, there was a clinical trial being done. And depending on which way that clinical trial fell out, you know, they were going to be a success or not. And that wasn't, it wasn't, that clinical trial wasn't anything to do with their technology, by the way. It was just the way a standard of care was going to go. And it went their way. And then, you know, they continued on their development and had a successful exit. So absolutely, I think, look plays a part or maybe external factors maybe is probably a better way to describe it but i think you know if you can put yourself in a position to to at least give yourself opportunities you know you'll you won't just because one passes by doesn't mean another one isn't there and from being a, a co-founder of one project in a an early stage medtech startup company if you knew what you know now about being a medtech entrepreneur would you do it all over again why or why not or would you change your life and do it differently? Yeah, good question. No, I mean, I, I absolutely would do it all over again. Um, you know, I think later on, we'll maybe discuss a bit of my own background, but probably slightly unusual or not unusual, but I spent most of my career in medtech in startups. So I've always worked for, and most of them I've worked for other entrepreneurs um, and it's something I've really enjoyed. So I got to work and see how those guys do it and they all do it differently. So I guess that kind of, startup um what's the word mentality was i guess you know instilled in me from early on um, i also previously founded another business um back in 2007 2008 not in medtech um, it was a you know very small business it's actually still running today with my dad my dad runs it but to me that what i wanted to do there was see could i start a business um, it wasn't a business that involved you know, raising a lot of capital like MedTech. It was a revenue generating business, but that's always been in me um, to a certain to a certain degree, that entrepreneurship bit. So, you know, and then watching others do it in MedTech startups, it was always something I was going to do. So I would absolutely do, absolutely do it again. It's not easy. I think um, entrepreneurship, yeah, some of it can be learned, but some of it's just got to be in you as well, I think. And then I have fun with this and, and love this question just because I... I typically know the answer after all the grit and grind of these stories that we've been hearing. But I always want to just break down this silo and the stereotype of being a CEO. And once again, whether, whether it's Netflix or the movies or whatever it may be, there's always this glamorous notion of, of being a CEO and you drive the nice cars and you have the Rolex. And just because you have the title, you're wealthy and all, well off. But MedTech CEO, starting a company, being an entrepreneur, is it glamorous being a medtech CEO? No. <laughs> um, no is the short answer. Um, it look, absolutely look. It comes with its its nice moments, um, and you know. But that's what you get in the journey for it. You know, every now and again, you get to put out a little bit of PR or do this and that, um, which is nice. But that's it's very fleeting. It's not at all really. You know what your job is about. The job is. Is very tough. It's it's all consuming. Um, 
you know, right from the early days when you are literally doing everything from, you know, uh, being a bit cliche, but from taking out the bins to doing R&D to doing fundraising to preparing accounts. And it's incredibly tough, especially at the start when, you know, there might only be two of you. Um, and you maybe you haven't raised finance or you have limited finance. Um, so I definitely wouldn't say it's it's glamorous, but it, it does what it does bring, I guess, is that internal satisfaction piece. So this is what you've set out to do. So, you know, as entrepreneurs, you know, myself and Christoph set out to to build this company. And we're still very much, you know, in the middle of that journey. But every now and again, you, you get to sit and maybe reflect on that. Um, in fact, we'll be doing it kind of now at the end of the year, right? So it's just naturally a good time where you reflect, reflect on the year that's gone by because you're planning for the next year. So I think every now and again, when you, when you do, when you take your head up out of the weeds and what you're doing, it's more of a, it's definitely not glamorous, but you do get an internal satisfaction of when you reflect back on and, and see, you know, how far you guys have come. And for those listening right now who may have missed it, and Fionn, correct me if I'm wrong, um, when you mentioned as being the CEO of a medtech startup, you still take out the bins. For all those who may not understand that, that's taking out the garbage or trash. Taking out the trash, yeah, absolutely. My last question for you, one projects. Hmm. What does the name of your company mean? How did you come up with that name? Yeah, it's 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 a little bit it's a little bit left of field. So, it, it's actually a nod to where the company uh, started. So we started in a program in Ireland called BioInnovate. I think Giovanni, you know the BioInnovate program very well, which is an affiliate of Stanford Biodesign. So I think probably a lot of your listeners would be very familiar with Stanford Biodesign um, and how it works and you know what the process is there. But essentially, in in, in, in the biodesign process, you spend several months working with doctors um, and with your partners to identify needs, clinical needs, right? So we did that. We spent many months working with doctors and we came up with hundreds of needs. Um, it's not hard to find needs in, in healthcare in general, but it's hard to find a business to build on that. So we went from a process of, you know, hundreds of needs and then we filtered them down, down and down and down until we got down to, you know, the final 50, 20, 10 and, and ultimately the final one, right? So one project for us was, okay, this is for us, it's, it's the number one project that we picked to go and pursue or it also represents a one project or a, a major problem in healthcare, right? We're trying to solve something major in, in cardiology in our case. So it's kind of, for us, it's a little bit of a nod to the pro the biodesign process and what we followed there. Uh, and then we just stuck an S on the end because, you know, hopefully we'll do this again. <laughs> nice, I like that. Yeah, so it's, you know, when people, it, it, look, it is, it is a little bit out there, but it does have, uh, it has meaning to us, I guess, in, in the background. And finally, the, the man behind the voice, Fionn mm -hmm. Lahart, co-founder and CEO of One Projects. Tell us who you are as a human, as a professional, where are you from? How did you build your career, your academic career, your professional career, ultimately to become co-founder, CEO of One Projects? And then when we get there, I'll just have you jump right into it. Tell us about what One Projects is after you've broken down and filtered all these ideas from the BioInnovate program and finally landed on the one. What is this technology that you've been developing? So tell us about who you are and talk about One Projects. Sure, sure. I'll try not to bore your listeners too much um, about myself, but, you know, people can tell from my accent. I'm, I'm from Ireland, so from Dublin and Ireland. Um, I have two young daughters, three and five. Um, I think, Giovanni, you're, you've just recently entered this world of young children. It's uh, extremely rewarding, extremely uh, tiresome, but, uh, you know, amazing nonetheless. Um, so, you know, that's 
my own little personal background. Um, my journey to here, so I'm an engineer originally, you know, I have an undergrad in um, mechanical engineering, design engineering, and then a postgrad or a master's degree in um, biomedical engineering at a Trinity, Co Trinity College in Dublin. Uh, subsequently then got actually through the BioInnovate program, you also get um, a diploma in bioinnovation, you know, for what it's worth, but that became many years later. So engineer originally, um, and, you know, straight out of the bat, pretty much started working um, in healthcare. Um, and as I said, most of that time in, in startups. So I've worked in, um, you know, three, three or four different startups, actually. So in, in various spaces, so vascular closure and gynecology space, um, worked in heart failure space. And I did actually spend some time out of med, out of med tech as head of R&D um, for a, a scooter company, actually. Um, so it was a company based at a Dublin a startup, you know, where they were, you know, scooters and kids are, it's a huge craze now. This is, you know, many, many years ago and thought that would be really interesting, but actually it was, it was you know, a really, really good experience very interesting, but also made me realize, you know, where I wanted to be was back in, back in healthcare. Um, so spent most of that time working in startups and it's fascinating. And I, you know, I, I was with those startups through all the different phases. So as I said, I started out as an engineer. So originally working on designing and engineering products and manufacturing and so on. And then, you know, that company, we would move into a clinical phase and, you know, small, you know, bootstrap startup. Um, my role then changed to clinical and regulatory, something I had really had very little experience in and didn't think I might, would have had that much interest in, actually, to be honest. So, you know, my boss asked me, would I, would I fill in this role? And I said, yeah, and, you know, actually really enjoyed it. So I spent, you know, a good few years doing clinical trials and that's setting them up, doing the applications, uh, running them. Um, and at one point, I remember being in, you know, first in human clinical trials and it kind of dawned on me, I said, you know, I've I'm here with a product in my hand that actually I worked on years ago as an engineer. We actually manufactured them in-house. I've set up the trial. I'm in here with the team. You know, if, if something goes wrong here, it's all on me. <laughs> um, but it's, I mean, a little bit facetious, but it, you know, that, that was an incredible experience. And I think going through that, all of those different phases, you know, from engineering to regulatory to clinical, really informs you actually it makes you it gives you that full 360 um now i haven't really been an engineer in a long time i probably should stop calling myself an engineer but it you know it gave me that grounding so always loved that um that side of things so again it was i was always on the lookout at some point i said okay i'd love to do this for myself so i think you can you learn a lot you learn a lot from startups um you know what to do right, what, to, you know, what went wrong. And I think there's no always easy answer to that. Sometimes what will work for one startup won't work from another. But I think just getting to work in those small teams and those entrepreneurs was, was absolutely fundamental for me. Um, and I'd still be quite close to, you know, my, my former bosses or CEOs and you know, we still meet up and, you know, it's, I get to talk to them about my journey now um, as well. And maybe appreciate, I appreciate a little bit more what they were going through or, you know, what the company was going through at the time as well, which you probably don't, you just can't really appreciate as much, um, you know, how, if you haven't done it yourself. Um, so then, you know, that brought me up to about, you know, 2015, 2016. And I, you know, I really, really was looking for that opportunity. It's not, not that easy. I, as I said before, I had started a, a business before that was pretty much easy to just start off the bat, start generating revenue. But MedTech's a totally different game. You've got to have an idea. You've got to have so many pieces of the puzzle, raising money. It's, it's just an absolutely different um, ball game. So I had been looking out for an opportunity and I came across BioInnovate in Ireland. Um, so I applied and got accepted as a fellow there. 
excuse me, 2015, 2016. I think that was transformative for me, really, in my journey to here, because I think BioInnovate is, or the biodesign process, it's, it's a great platform. Um, for me, the real value, I, I, I wasn't going there to learn medtech. I'd already, you know, had all that under the belt. But I think developing a network, um, so I think BioInnovate or Biodesign, they give you great access. People are coming to, the, to a program like that with different backgrounds. So some people are going to learn about medtech, but for me, it was about getting a network of, of you know, investors, exposure, uh, advisors, you know, they do a great job of putting that whole, that whole ecosystem together. So, and also then of course, an opportunity to, to meet my co-founder as well. So, you know, you mentioned earlier on about look, uh, you know, that's look as well. So Christoph was going, undergoing the same thought process back in Germany. Uh, he was looking out, you know, how can I become a medtech entrepreneur? What's the next step I can take? And he applied for BioInnovate in Ireland because they didn't have the equivalent program in Germany and he got accepted, he arrived over and we were on the same team. So absolutely luck involved there would be me meeting Christoph. Um, and that's that's really where, where we started. So went through the biodesign process, came out at the end with you know this idea that we're, we're trying to solve here in cardiology. And you know we subsequently, we were successful in, in getting early grant funding from the Irish government through an organization called Enterprise Ireland. Um, and, you know, that gave us, you know, early funding for a couple of years to, to essentially prove the concept of, of what we were doing. So, you know, develop early stages of the technology and take it through preclinical uh, or animal studies, for example. So to give us the base to essentially go out there um, and fundraise. So off the back of that, we, we did that then. We went out and we raised, um, you know, a Series A, uh, our Series A1 in, in 2020 and followed up by a Series uh, A2 just uh, a month or so ago in October, as you referenced at the start. So that's my uh, overview of my background. I hope that's enough. That's a good one. And, and also leading into now the technology, um, mm -hmm. tell us about one project, so th this whole once again, filtration of what you guys created with Christoph in the BioInnovate program and, and now the technology behind One Projects. What are you guys developing? Yeah, sure. So we're, we're developing a cardiac imaging technology. Um, and what we're trying to do is, uh, you know, we've, we're, we're working in electrophysiology and in structural heart. So maybe I'll just go back to the beginning. You know, when we were, when we were in, you know, going through the biodesign process, we saw, you know, lots and lots of procedures and, and different problems. But one we came back to, you know, multiple times was atrial fibrillation or AFib. I'm sure you've heard of it, Giovanni, or many people will. And it's essentially, you know, a heart rhythm disorder. And one thing that really stood out to us was the, the lack of successful surgical treatment um, for that procedure. So there's a surgery port called ablation. You know, when it works, it works very well, but it's, it, it, it only works about half the time. So 50, 60% of the time in, in a first procedure. And we thought that was really low um, and we wanted to find out why that was. This is a huge problem globally. It's, and it's only, it's getting bigger and bigger, you know, like pretty much all cardiac diseases, it's a disease of age, right? So as populations age, this just is gonna become more prominent. It's not going anywhere. Um, so we began to look at the reasons why and how we could help solve that. Um, worked with doctors on it, came up with concepts and, and things like that. And ultimately now we have a technology which we call Verify. Uh, and Verify, it's a, it's a cardiac imaging technology, um, but it has, you know, I think three distinct USPs or, or three distinct features um, that will help cardio cardiologists deliver, you know, 
what we call, well, so I know what we call, but what a lot of people call precision medicine. So ultimately what we do is, is provide um, high quality, detailed, accurate mapping of, of the heart, of the chambers of the heart. So in our, in our, we have one system, it's a catheter-based system, uh, so one hardware system, um, but we have different software then that enables different parts of the technology. So at our core, at our core of the hardware or the core of the system, um, we can perform like an, what's called an ice catheter or an intracardiac echo catheter. You've probably heard of it before, been around a long time. And what that does, it helps guide physicians in their procedures. Typically, up until very recently, these were 2D grayscale images. So think of, you know, baby scan, which you're, <laughs> which you've seen a lot of, but, you know, think of these baby scan 2D images. So, um, you know, not always hard to, to, to understand. You've got to, you have to have experience in it. Sometimes you have to have maybe a different person in the room to, to understand these images and help you guide. But more recently, ice imaging or intracardiac echo imaging has moved to 3D and 4D. So at our core, this is what we do. So we've got a 4D ice imaging platform where we can provide highly accurate images um, to the doctor to help guide them, particularly, you know, they're crossing what's called the, the transeptal crossing going from the right atrium to the left atrium. So this is a standard procedure that they have to do. Um, and I think what, what, we're, what we do, I suppose maybe a, a good way to think of it is, you know, we've all heard or most people have heard of MRI scans or, or CAT scans, right? And they're incredibly powerful and amazing imaging technologies. However, they are involved big machines and happens in another part of the hospital and requires, you know, different physician to, to read those, those images. What we want to do is provide that level of accurate imaging live within the procedure. So, you know, the doc doctors are, are they, they do use those images, but they are typically, those images have been taken previously and they're trying to match them up and align things like that. So we can provide those images live in real time. So that's, you know, at the core foundation, but we can actually take that imaging to a next step. So typically ice imaging is used for, for guidance but we can actually take that down to, to I think, another level uh, and actually map the entire cardiac chamber. So we can recreate the entire structure of the heart in, in 3D in real time. Um, a lot of, actually all of the catheters that do this at the moment typically look in one direction. So think of a torch, wherever you shine your torch is kind of what you can see. We actually recreate the entire structure, 360 degrees all around the catheter, and we do this in, in real time. And we, we, we go into incredible, I think, levels of detail and um, you know going back to what I what I mentioned about MRI and CT you know fantastic images but they just they're not happening live so we can actually provide that to the doctors during the procedure and that actually enables them to plan their procedure now better because now they can know my cardiac structures you know the wall is this thick it's you know it's five mil or it's two mil and actually they can make better decisions on what their therapy um, strategy is going to be so again it's coming down to this precision medicine right so what do you want as a patient and touch wood you know we're not well maybe we will but hopefully we won't be one of those patients but if you are you know you want the doctor to have the best information available to them while they're delivering a therapy. So, you know, accurate imaging to know exactly where they are and where to deliver that treatment. So that's the second part. So the first is ice imaging. The second is, I guess, mapping imaging or recreating that map in, in 4D. And then the last one is actually during ablation for, for AFib, what they're trying to actually do, what doctors are trying to do is very selectively um, destroy parts of the tissue within the heart 
where there's signals coming into the heart that are disrupting the normal heart rhythm, if that makes sense, I hope it does. So by destroying selectively parts of this tissue, they can actually prevent the signals coming into the heart. The big problem with that they have though, is actually confirming or verifying that actually they've destroyed the right tissue or the correct amount of tissue, because you have to do it incredibly precisely and you have to do it the whole way through. If you only do half a job, um, you know th that patient is gonna come back in six months or 12 months and they're going to be back in AFib. So what they're trying to do, maybe a good analogy is, is a dam. They're trying to create a dam in the heart yeah, to try and stop these signals coming in. But if that dam is, is, is only halfway built, for example, and they don't know, this is the problem. Doctors don't have feedback right now to tell them, okay, you've ablated this tissue successfully, or maybe it's only ablated 50% of the way through. So now with this technology, with our verified technology, we can actually give them that data for the first time and say, okay, you've ablated here and here and here, um, there's a gap over here. You, you missed a spot here or just 50% here. Uh, whatever it is, they, they will make the decision, you know, on the day that we give them, but we want to be able to give them that data in real time. So they can, create, they can correct that procedure because what's happening now is they'll do the procedure the first time. If it doesn't work, the patient comes back and they'll do quite a lot of the same procedure again, because they're just going over where they've been to make sure, right? Because they don't have that data available to them. It's incredibly difficult to get. Um, so that's where we come in with our third part. So we've got, we've got ice, we've got map, and then we've got tissue analysis. So I think, you know, tissue analysis is incredibly powerful. I think at a top level, if you can think of it as where does a doctor want to know the difference between tissue? Um, there's many areas beyond cardiology, for example, where that's very useful, but right here in, in ablation and electrophysiology, they want to know, is the tissue necrotic or is it not? So we're going to move into the entrepreneurial questions and the, and the fundraising questions and the capital raising questions, but I, I do like to geek out, especially in the cardiology space. Mm. And I do have one technology question for you. And it's honestly more for me so I can wrap my head around it. I, I've never truly understood the difference. So hopefully you can help me and, and those listening now. And then we'll get into the fun entrepreneurial stuff. 2D, 3D, and 4D. Yeah. Just for the lay person, describe that transition and capabilities of 2D, 3D, and 4D. Like I don't truly understand me personally what yeah. 4D means. Yeah, no, absolutely, totally get it. So, so 2D is, is just a single slice, yeah? So you've taken an apple, you've cut it in half, and you've just got an image of what it looks like cut in half, or in this case, it's, it's a heart. So they can just look at a section of the heart in 2D, typically in, in grayscale, you know, ultrasound um, image. So again, I think a baby scan is always a good analogy. Just think of that Polaroid baby scan, you know, grayscale 2D. So that's 2D. 3D then is, you know, you're adding depth, I guess, to that, right? So I think we'll all, we all understand probably what a 3D model looks like. So now you're, you're building a picture of the heart um, in, in the third dimension or in three dimensions. So think of a model where you can actually, you know, you've got a, a heart in your hand and you can rotate it around and have a look at the shape. Again, they do 3D baby scans, right? We've all seen those where you, know, you get all this incredibly fine detail. Um, 4D, uh, it's, it sounds probably uh, more complex than it is. It's just adding in time. So adding in, in here in cardiology, it's, you can now look at a beating heart. So a 3D model would just be a static 3D model that you can rotate around of the heart, but a 4D is actually looking at that live. So it's now beating, right? Because I think sometimes that's, until you see a procedure, you, you, you can sometimes underappreciate how difficult this is and what doctors are trying to do and navigate to 
in a beating heart. It's a, an actually incredibly hostile environment. And quite often, you know, even when you see a 3D image on the screen, you're thinking, oh, look at that nice static 3D heart, but it's that's not what's happening in real time. So, you know, doctor, different doctors will, will want to use it differently. I think 2D, you know, they're all very well used to using them. Everyone's moving to 3D now. And then 4D, you may want to turn on and off because, you know, 4D, when so the heart is now beating, you can actually look at your catheter. You can see what's happening with your catheter because you're, cat, you're trying to put a catheter an ablation catheter against the wall of the heart and apply an energy. But this heart is beating, you know, typically, you know, quite, quite fast. So as I say, it is a hostile atmosphere. So the only difference between 3D and 4D is just adding in time. So showing the heart beating um, over time. Now they might not want to turn that on all the time, but it's available to them. And I think there's specific cases where they will want that. I hope that clears it up. I love learning something new every day. So that was at least the beginning of my day now, that was it. So thank you for that. Um, I wanted to go into the, the entrepreneurial and now fundraising questions um, long before COVID actually set in, right? So this virtual environment where we all were trapped where we are. You mentioned that Christoph, your co-founder, you met him as he applied to the BioInnovate program in Ireland. If I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, but Christoph actually now lives back in Germany in Munich, right? Yeah. And, and he has pretty much since the inception of One Project's being a company. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So he, he moved to Ireland while uh, while we were doing BioInnovate, you know, that's a 10 month program. So he was, you know, living here for a year and then, you know, moved back to Munich where his partner is, you know, he now has has a young family. So that was one of our early challenges, actually, um, just, you know, speaking of entrepreneurial journey, you know, where, where you have co-located um, people or teams, um, but actually there's, there's a lot of advantages to it. In fact, actually, I just spoke to a new founding team this morning where there's an Irish person and a German person as well so they obviously contacted us to get our perspective on how that worked but you know there's, there's advantages um, certainly for us there so we're lucky that both Ireland and Germany um, are very strong in medtech so you know Ireland I think is recognized as a global hub for medtech Giovanni you'll know lots of the companies here not just the inter not just the multinational companies but a lot of startups um, as well. So, you know, for us, we've got a catheter-based system. Ireland is um, known, I guess, for its catheter expertise. So we have a lot of catheter companies here, a lot of catheter expertise. We have a lot of um, people who have expertise in that area in Ireland. Munich then, where, where, where Christoph is based or where, where our other office is based, also a big med tech hub, but more so on the imaging side of things. So, you know, for us, you know, it's actually played played into our hands a little bit. So we've access to, I think, an incredible amount of people who have expertise, particularly on imaging, on the machine learning, and on the kind of the data science side of things. Where Ireland is strong or getting stronger, I think, on the data science piece, but not not specifically in imaging. Um, you know, so Christoph's background is in imaging. Um, I I think he would be one of the you know very recognized uh, leaders in that field. And, um, you know, he led a lab in medical imaging, for example, out of um, Technical University in Munich. So we were able to take advantage of, okay, it wasn't um, a little bit serendipity that, okay, yeah, he lives there and wants to move back there, but then we turned that into our advantage. Um, and then there's other ways, you know, where that has helped as well. So, you know, we're, we're talking about fundraising, for example. So, you know, one projects, we have an office in, in Ireland, in Dublin, we have an office in Munich. Um, so we've access to investors here in Ireland, but of course, Germany is many, many times bigger than Ireland, you know, 80 million people or whatever it is, and plus, you know, all the things that come with that as well. So I think having a German base has, has really helped us too. 
So that, that was a, a strong part of my question for sure on, on was it challenging? Are there benefits to having co-founders? And now we've been living in this semi-virtual now, our world now rather, um, but you guys were doing it long before we had to. And so yeah. do, do you find, even though that you just shared the benefits of that, right? With Whether it's the imaging portion of it and also having access to German investors with Christoph being back there, in addition to the uh, attributes and benefits that you have being in Ireland, et cetera just on a human behavior and also early stage kind of creating something from white sheet of paper, what were the challenges of having co-founders not necessarily in the same room all the time, drinking coffee, eating pizza, whatever they need to do into the wee nights of the, uh, uh, or wee hours of the night, kind of ideating together. Like how, how was that challenge? Yeah, no, it absolutely was a challenge. And yeah, it's funny where COVID came in and now everybody has to do that. It was definitely a challenge, but, you know, okay, so pre-COVID when travel was open. So, excuse me, we would we would see each other actually, you know, probably every, you know, once a month or whatever it was anyway. But there was also just two of us. This is right at the very beginning. So we would spend a lot of time, you know, we're on a video call here now. We would often just have video calls open. You know that kind of way so with two people that with, with only two people that's actually quite easy as soon as you start bringing you know more team in there and it, it, that you know that of course becomes a little bit harder but yeah we were already operating that way in a pre-covid world covid came in that that just made it harder because i didn't see i didn't travel to munich or i didn't see christoph from you know march 2020 to september 2021 um that, that's everybody has their own version of that story so that that's been incredibly hard um but i think you look we we already had set settled into that way of working you know pre-covid and we also knew you know we spoke to people about it that it's nothing new having teams who are not in the same city or country and you know it but it does require effort it does require you know i think being disciplined and, and having you know we tried many different ways so this is just getting into practical stuff now but you know at the start it was ad hoc and then we said okay no do you know what you need to talk every morning at this time and every afternoon at this time so we would try different ways um to make it work and we kind of settle on a nice cadence but you know interspersing meeting or traveling to meet each other anyway once a month you know kind of made it a lot easier and then when we were fundraising you know you would be then be traveling to you know a vc's office or wherever so you were then beginning to meet each other you know, elsewhere, not just in our own offices, but, you know, going to investors or going to subcontractors or suppliers. So there was lots of opportunity to meet up anyway, to be honest, but then, you know, COVID absolutely made that a lot harder. So you bring up a really interesting point and I want to heavy press on this. We, we talk mm -hmm. a lot about early stage capital on this podcast series, and we also generalize it with early stage capital typically does not move too far from home or at least outside mm -hmm. the country borders and i have this question very regularly posed to me about international companies at least from here from the united states whether it's in europe or israel or china or wherever they may be from um, and they're raising capital and they want access to u.s investors and once again being early stage and whether it's on this podcast series and talking to angel groups or early stage capital uh, venture capitalists they say, I mean, these aren't my words or that they're their words that they typically do not look outside the United States, whether it's because of tax law complications, et cetera, they, they really kind of keep it close to home. That same concept is mirrored even in Europe, for example. I mean, there's, there's 
French investors or French companies, for example, that they talk about raising capital and, and they don't really go outside their borders because sometimes raising early stage capital from Germany, if you're a French company, the German uh, VCs won't invest in France. Once again, a generalization. But this whole idea of, of money, early stage money, not leaving too far from home. Having you be based in Ireland, having Christoph being based in Germany, I'm assuming two legal entities, one in Germany, one in Ireland, was that also not necessarily a premeditated uh, strategy, but did it also benefit you from having access to Irish um, VCs and, and, and investors in general? And the same thing goes in Germany and then collectively within Europe. Was that a beneficial strategy? Um, I, I think in the end, it was a nice to have. Um, I, I, can, I can give an example why. I, I don't, I, at the start, I don't think it, it mattered too much so maybe just put some context there you know ireland is really small um on the international scene we've got five million people but we do have absolutely incredible incredibly big med tech hub and you know a lot of companies here so there are some there are some obviously med tech or vcs here in ireland but there's only a small amount of them right um so I think we've been lucky enough you know the med tech scene has been building in ireland for you know i think several decades at this point that there are already, and there is, there's loads of examples of international VCs, European, US, and so on, investing in Irish companies. So, you know, we were lucky enough that that was already done. So we're, we're, we're you know, we're, build, we're building on that work, I suppose, a little bit. Um, I think, you know, what we did at the beginning, uh, you know, I think in general, when you're, you know, starting out in your fundraising, we mapped out all the VCs who we thought would be interested in this space. Um, so... In cardiology or in electrophysiology, you know, so we looked at who who are the main players here, and then also who's already made investments in electrophysiology recently, right? Because they're probably unlikely to invest in two AFib companies, right? So not that you completely rule them out, but kind of strategically, you know, when you're starting out, to where where to focus your time because it does take it takes an abs- it takes a lot of time. You've got to build those relationships, and we started that really early, um, and I think that was you know advice we had from others, and I give that. To other people all the time whatever time you think it's going to take it's going to take longer so start that start that piece early so we didn't we, we didn't focus on ireland at all we, we immediately didn't didn't have any of those boundaries we said who are the who are the people we would think would be good investors here and this was you know so we do this our, ourselves by you know through the internet or whatever but actually having advisors i think is really important so people who've done this you know there's many, many medtech entrepreneurs, or not just medtech entrepreneurs, but you know they're all around and they're always so willing to give time and help. And you know that was quite, quite formative, formative for us in the early stages. Just getting advice, you know, and also introductions. I think introductions to VCs are very powerful. Of course, you can just reach out by email, and and we did that too. But I often feel getting an intro um, goes a long way. So we didn't really focus on Ireland because it's quite small in that sense but we focused all around um having a presence in germany it wasn't a deliberate strategy from an investment point of view but it it did help in the end because you know i think you'll know giovanni many uh, sorry all vcs you know they're raising their money elsewhere right so they've got different lps and they sometimes would have mandates on them or, or preferences coming from the lp saying oh well if you've one of your lps is german they may have a preference say okay if you're you know, just making up numbers here, but if you're going to invest in 20 companies, we would like if one of them was based in Germany. So that was a kind of a nice to have that I think played into our hands in the end. But as I said, it wasn't, 
wasn't going to be the reason to be successful or not, but I think it definitely helped having that presence. Um, I, I think, and you know, we didn't mention it really yet, but we spoke about VCs, but you know, we'd also apply, or we'd, we have been successful in European grants as well. And I think, so from a grant often, you know, the aim of institutions providing grants, so, you know, be it the Irish government, German government, European um, institutions, and I don't know if it's the same in America, but often the, the aim there is to create, to build companies to create employment. So when we were applying for some of these European grants, for example, having a company that had two legal entities across two European, two EU states, so Ireland and Germany, again, I, I don't think, I think that was a, a nice to have at the end, but I think it, was, it fits the mandate of some of these investors as well. You bring up, and earlier in this podcast, you, you brought up an interesting point where you said that you, after getting some early stage grants, right, went into series A1, and then obviously more recently, the series A2. Mm-hmm. I didn't hear you mention a seed round. Mm-hmm. Was there a reason behind that? What, what, did you consider, first and foremost, we've talked about a lot on this podcast series about what's in a name. Sometimes these names of funding rounds get confusing, but yeah. Did one projects actually bypass the seed stage and just go right into series A? And then why series A1 and series A2? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So some of the naming conventions are a bit funny. So yeah, we did, in a way, we did bypass the seed stage. So we, so we got, I mentioned already, we got the very, very early stage funding um, from Enterprise Ireland, which is, was, I, I would call it pre-seed almost, you know, proof of concept. Um, and we deliberately, went out with the strategy of we wanted to raise a large A round um, if the appetite was there to do that. So, you know, we mentioned earlier on about luck or timing. It may be that we went to the market or went to investors and, you know, we wanted to raise a large round. They might have, you know, it, they could have just come back and said, no, you know, go and do a, you know, a seed round of, you know, whatever, two or, or, or three million. But we knew for the journey that we're on, you know, cardiac, catheter and the system we're building is incredibly complex what we're doing has never really been done before so we knew having i think one you know big backers so vcs in there was going to be important and i think having you know a good runway now we could have done of course absolutely we could have done the seed round raised two three million whatever it's going to be you know but straight away we would be back out or i would be back out fundraising again almost the next day right so um, wanted to see if it was possible and I think it made sense from the opportunity we were going after and, and we, we very quickly realized that there was appetite there um, from VCs. I think there's, there's a huge interest in, in AFib and electrophysiology from the corporates, right? It's a, it's a hugely acquisitive space and then of course that spills down then into investors and opportunities they look for. So we got a sense that that was our strategy from the beginning and we got a sense very early on that that, that, was, that was a reality uh, and thankfully it turned out that way. So what you know it wasn't we could have ended up in that kind of you know seed round but we kind of got to bypass it a little bit. Um, and then in terms of A1 and A2 essentially we were doing a round um, in in, as I said, it was closed during the pandemic. Pandemic, so we actually closed it in, in June 2020. Um, and we'd had an opportunity. We'd had other investors come in there. You know, right at the end, we could have done a bigger round, but it was going to take longer. And at that point, the pandemic was hitting. We said, you know what? This is a an amazing round. We've got amazing investors in here. So it was led by LSP out of Amsterdam uh, and also Atlantic Bridge here in Dublin, as well as actually Enterprise Ireland investing as well. It was an 11 million euro round. So whatever that is in dollars today, I guess, 
12 and a half, 13 million dollars. Um, we knew that was a that was an amazing A round. But we also said, okay, you know, we did we had a lot of interest in this, but you know, with the pandemic and everything, we wanted to get it closed and obviously get on with developing and executing and what, what we wanted to do. But we also discussed it and we said, well, if an opportunity comes up, um, we're, we're not actively fundraising, but sometimes when you close a deal or when you close an investment, um, you know, it puts you on the radar of maybe other people. And we said, okay, well, if, if the opportunity comes up and the opportunity is right, you know, we can add to that A round and we can extend on to that. And what we meant by that is, you know, we're not just simply looking for more for more money, although of course, you know, right back to your, your very first question, what's important people are money. Money is important, but what we were also looking for is actually value add um, as well from the investor. So, you know, this the A2 round, that we closed just now was led by a firm called venture capital firm called IMEC Expand out of Belgium. And they have, you know, very specific expertise or can, they can bring a lot of expertise or knowledge in our technology space, um, as well as other things that VCs can do, but they do have a very specific expertise. So, you know, I think the opportunity was right. The investor was right. Um, we, we didn't have to do that, but I think, you know, all things added up. We said, yeah, I think this is, this is the right thing to do. I have the press release up right next to me right now, and, and it says that um, you guys raised nine million out of the two grants, and then the other eight million made up the rest of the VC money within A2. So a couple questions here, because grants play so strongly into your business in addition to the VC side. Are there or what are the downsides of grant money? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And again, I, I mentioned already, I spoke to two founders this morning, actually, just about this. And they're just, you know, right at the very beginning of their journey where they're I, I pretty much asking that exact same question. Um, it's not black and white. It depends where, where the grants are coming from. So we've been really lucky. We, we got awarded two big grants. One was from um, the EIC, which is the European Innovation Council. Uh, it's a grant that's been around a long time. Um, and that was a two and a half million euro grant that was awarded to the company. And I think that was, that's, it's one of the probably hardest grants to get. But one, if you do get it, if you do get through it, it's one of the most straightforward. So what I mean by that is, you know, the grant goes directly to the company and you spend it based on your plan. So you're not bringing in other consortium partners or anything like that. It's simply your plan and you execute on it and you spend it and you, know, you do that with in conjunction with reporting back to EIC. So that's a, that's a thing with grants, of course, you know, that there's, it's public money, it's taxpayers' money. So there's a responsibility there. And there's probably a higher, not a higher level, but another level of reporting that has to go back um, to those institutions. But that, that, that grant is particularly good. I would recommend anyone um, to, to go for that if they're, if they're so inclined. The other grant we got is very specific to Ireland and it's called DTIF, um, Disruptive Technology Innovation Fund. Again, a really good grant. I think grants are a great, a great thing for a company um, as well. Um, the difference in this brand is actually it's a consortium, right? So even though it's our technology and we're the lead, we actually do apply for that grant. You have to put together a consortium. So you've got to bring in some partners. Um, so that requires another level of organization. You've got to go ahead and get all of that together um, and bring those partners on board with you before you even apply. And then the other thing with that grant is, and this would be very typical of grants, you need co-funding. So that, you know, Typically, grants will fund seventy percent of whatever your 
program is and then you've got to get the 30 percent elsewhere now for us that wasn't a problem thankfully because you know we've we're very well funded in terms of the series a1 and a2 so we have the funding there to match it or you know you need to get this match funding but just you know to to any entrepreneurs maybe listening to this and looking at grants you know you need to look at is match funding required and, and where are you going to get that because I've heard of companies or instances where people did get grants but actually ultimately couldn't get the 30% they needed or maybe some of the grants are 50% whatever it was um, you need to have that coming from elsewhere as well. So to your point on what you just mentioned on grants albeit non-dilutive capital and certainly great to have they certainly don't make it easy, right? And there's always levels of complication. There's no such thing as a, a free lunch or free free capital, right? So you have to work pretty hard for it. It just looks different than working with professional investors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you have to work, yeah. I mean, the application process, I mean, they're worth, like a lot of these grants are worth a lot of money, several millions. Um, so there's a, there's a usually very uh, detailed, involved process that goes on there with applications and then interviews and, and you know evaluations and then you've got to report back. So absolutely, there's overheads involved with it. Um, so you do have to stay stay on top of it, and that's 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 one of the things you. That, I wouldn't call it a drawback, but yeah, that's what that's what it comes with. I'm going to ask this one last question on grants before we get into the venture side. But for all those listening out there right now, wherever you are in the world, and just from your example, let's just focus on Europe, but hopefully it's applicable for the rest of the world. Um, as you go out and look for VCs, right, just investors, if we looked at from the grant side, what advice would you give to those entrepreneurs listening in right now? How do you go about finding the grants? I mean, is it you Google them and say, hey, MedTech grants in Europe and, and just start going down the list? Or like, how do you actually find these applicable or appropriate grants wherever mm -hmm. they may be? Um, yeah, good question. I suppose, well, we were aware, I mean, in, in your, I'm not, I'm not actually really familiar with the US side of grants at all, or even if I'm sure there must be some level of grants, but um, the EU grant I mentioned, or the EIC, um, it used to be called Horizon 2020. Every few years, they rename it something else. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's the same, 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 but different. That's been around a long time. So that, that would have been well known. Um, I think all around Europe. It's not specific to medtech, actually. By the way, as well, most of I'm trying. I'm struggling to think of a pure medtech brand. I, I'm not aware of one. Usually, usually, as I said, these are based around job creation or value creation in the economy. Um, so EIC would have different calls for different topics. You know, medtech or climate or you know deep tech. Um, you know, there's all. You know, you can apply. It's pretty much open. Um, BioInnovate, I think you know was always you know they're any of those networks, um, they're good at disseminating information on when a specific call might open. So that's the thing with grants, there's, there's specific timeframes. You can't just apply it whenever you want. Typically it's maybe once or once or twice a year. DTIF, the Irish, the Irish specific grant, that's very new, um, I think. So we just got awarded it um, this April. I think this was the, we were the third, this is the third year it's running. And I, I saw recently they've announced, announced a call for the fourth. The fourth year so i mean typically they're advertising for these grants but yeah google or you know to be honest there's, there's a lot of companies who consult in this actually as well so if you google grant consultant uh and talk to one of them they'll give you the full landscape it's usually not not too hard to find that's that's the little tip and trick that i was looking for right there so there are grant consultants out there that oh, yeah. can help out these startups okay Absolutely. very good I, I love this next question just because i romanticize about 
me raising money one day, but I've heard all these stories and, and I think I could navigate it a little bit better after hearing all these entrepreneurial stories. But this, this moment in time when you were an entrepreneur who had never raised capital before, and now all of a sudden you are. You're a co-founder and CEO of One Projects, and you have an idea that you have to go out and get funding. And, and you've talked about the grant side of it, but when it went out to external money to professional investors, that click moment in time I, when you said, okay, I have to start networking with investors or finding them or putting together slide decks. I mean, what was that process, that very early stage process of you looking out for investors? How did you find them? What information did you need to start with? Did you buy software platforms? Did you sit in front of Google and just type in MedTech investors? Did you have Excel spreadsheets? What did you do to raise capital? How did you even go about that being that first-time entrepreneur? Yeah, re look, really good question. And um, again, it's not black and white. So I, I think I mentioned already for, for me going into BioInnovate, that was one of the really important bits that I wanted to get from it, which was this network. So network of... MedTech entrepreneurs, MedTech advisors, but MedTech investors. So I think, you know, within BioInnovate or BioDesign, that BioDesign process, as you know, is replicated in a lot of places globally now. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a kind of a safe space, maybe a little bit as well. So they'll just bring in VCs and just, they'll, they'll talk you through, here's our process, here's how it works, here's what we want to know. So, um, you know, there's quite a well-known formula out there, I guess, which is what, which will be what VCs want to see. Or, now, different VCs will invest at different stages, but they're looking at all the classic things. Okay, so what's the team? What's the opportunity? What's the market size? What's the IP landscape? What's the competition? So that, that's, not, that's all pretty known. So there's, you know, whatever, eight, nine, or 10 sweet spots that they're going to look for. So you already know what that is. And then I think building those early relationships is really important. And I think going, so, you know, we, we very deliberately from the very beginning, we didn't wait until we had our proof of concept done or proved out. We went out, uh, we met the investors we knew, we asked for introductions to other investors, you know, and it takes time. You, you know, Google will tell you a lot, but actually it, it takes months or years to actually get to these people and, and build up that relationship with them. Um, but I think, you know, just going to them early, telling them who you are, here's who we are, here's what we're doing, here's the problem we're trying to address. You can hit some of those sweet spots and say, um, and we'll come back to you in, in three months with an update or six months with an update. And I think, you know, investors, particularly in the early stage, they're looking at team, right? They're looking at, okay, you don't have the technology done yet. So they need to build confidence, you know, and I think I've listened to several of your VC guests on as well. And, you know, they confirmed it, which is they're investing in team first. So if you meet these investors and say, here's what we're doing, here's what we're about, we're very early, but in six months, we're going to have this and this done. And then you go and you meet them in six months and you say, okay, we've done this and this, or you know what, we didn't do this. And here's why. I suppose they're trying to understand, they're getting a sense of you, how you guys work, what's your process and why you made those decisions. So they're building that trust in you, um, I think all the time. And then, of course, technology will, will come into it as well. So I think being as prepared as you can going into an investor, um, you know, as I said, there is very well-known things they're going to look for. So I think if you have your ducks in a row um, going to speak with them, I think that'll, that'll stand out a lot because investors are, you know, I'm the wrong person to be saying, to be answering this. But I mean, I think some of your guests have said, I mean, they look at hundreds, absolutely hundreds of pitches or companies. So you need to, need to find a way to 
to get their attention, either, you know, be it through the opportunity you're doing or even how you present yourselves or how you present the company. And which is why I mentioned earlier on getting intros is actually important. So, you know, we used in the very early stages, we had advisors who we would lean on and, you know, get advice from and then say, you know, would you be able to make an introduction to, you know, Giovanni or whoever it is? And these are thankfully people who who are able to do that or sorry who are willing to do that and actually because it's they're putting their name on the line a little bit right because they're making the introduction on you know they're putting their name associated with your name in a way it's a little bit soft but but they are as well so um i think all of those things combined but i think the key message or i guess maybe the key key thing we did was, was do it early and get out there early because you'll you'll very quickly find out whether you're on the right track or not. You asked earlier on, you know, why didn't you raise a seed round? We deliberately went to do a series A and we knew very early on that that was going to be possible. So therefore we continued to pursue that strategy. If we had got feedback from, I don't know, the first two or three or investors we spoke of saying, oh, look guys, you know, you're not going to raise, you know, north of 10 million here, you know, focus on two or three. Um, so I, I think going out there early and, and I think testing testing that bed and, and building those relationships is the most important bit. A couple last questions, and I'm sensitive to time here. Thank you for giving it to us thus far, and this has been an excellent conversation. Um, with regards to learning from failures, mistakes, bad experiences, I, I think we we all learn more from those than we do beautiful successes that are put nicely in a press release. Um, however you want to summarize it, what are some of your experiences, failures, mistakes, challenges in your capital raising process? If there's any anecdotal stories and you don't, you don't have to mention names or anything, but you know, just give us some of these, wow, that was an aha learning uh, moment for me during this capital raise of like, I won't do that again, or that happened to me. What are some of those just so we can learn from those landmines as opposed to just the, the beautiful successes? <laughs> Um, it's it's kind of hard to answer. I, I there isn't you know absolute standout moments um, of oh you know that was you know totally the wrong thing or I I think the only thing you can do is you know you give yourself the best opportunity with with investors. So I think give your have your have your have your ducks in a row as I said you know talk to as many people as you, as you can because as I said people many many thousands or whatever people have done this before you right so you and they're nearly always willing to give you their time so get as get as much advice as you can get as much input as you can and then you know back yourself i think that's really important so get as much as you can together and make that decision and do the do the best you can with that information that you have um you know you can look back and you can always i think we can all do this we can all look back and say oh i would have done this different or i i would have done that different but that that's hindsight, right? And you know, that's it's pretty easy to do. I think, I think if you do, if you have the best in, you know, you make the best decision you can with the information you have at that time, I think that that's all you can do. Um, in terms of fundraising is not easy. Um, I think you know, there was one entrepreneur who <laughs> used to throw this phrase out all the time. He said, you know, you you need to kiss a thousand frogs before you find your prince. And you know, <laughs> uh, you know, it is absolutely true. You're just gonna meet a lot of investors who it's not necessarily that they're wasting your time. Maybe they do want to find out about the opportunity and then maybe they realize it's not for them, but you know, quite often you do spend a lot of time with investors that maybe doesn't go anywhere for various reasons. Some, maybe they don't like your opportunity that you're presenting to, or, or maybe it's nothing that maybe they do like it, but it doesn't fit in with their investment thesis or they've just invested in an AF company. You know, you, 
again going back to this thing about luck timing and and uh you know opportunity play plays a lot in there but i would absolutely be saying to people just be prepared to go out and meet as many people as you can um and you know eventually you know you will find because it is it's a it is a relationship that has to last for a long time if it's a venture capital relationship um and i think going all the way back to your first question people and money people i would bring investors into that as well so i think when we all think of people maybe we think of team or who's in the company but actually the investors is a hugely important part you need to be able to work closely with them um, and have a very good relationship with them and you know a trusting relationship but two ways um, so i think that's just as important as well and it takes time to build that you hit the point that i was looking for on, on time and also how much time it takes to raise capital and it's often wasted i mean i i hear this one story that will always stick in my head um it was a first-time entrepreneur raising capital and he had reached out to a prominent VC in Europe and he just didn't know the landscape and he was raising a series A and he had nine meetings, each of them about an hour with this one VC only to find out at the very end that they never had any intention of investing into them. And if, if he would have done a little bit more due diligence, he would have realized that they never do series A they're a yeah. series C investor. And then he found out very later on um, that the reason why they took all the meetings is because they had another opportunity in an actual later stage company. They just were trying to learn the landscape of the technology. So um, those are those landmines and, and time is a huge thing that I want to get over to the entrepreneurs. Last question. Uh, I just want to, because it all comes down, especially early stages, but it, it sticks out throughout the life of uh, raising capital. This idea of a slide deck for those entrepreneurs, those first entrepreneurs out there who have never put one together. Um, it's a simple question. Um, but it's foundational for capital raising and the story that you're telling. How, how did you put together your slide deck or, or when you never had done one before, what did you learn along the way of how important a slide deck is, how you tell your story? Did you get help with your slide deck? Did you hire somebody? Did you do it all yourself? Um, did you shorten it down and only do a one page executive summary or did you do the, the typical 10 to 20 slide slide deck? Just wrap up with entrepreneur, like what you would tell entrepreneurs listening in on the importance of a slide deck. Yeah, I think I think it's really important. Actually, um, it's a it's a really good question. Um, we, so we did we always did it ourselves. We still always do it ourselves. But one piece we did, and we took this decision early. Um, and I've I've given this advice to others, whether they do it, or, whether they do it or not, I don't know. But we, I think, even before even the company was founded, I've forgotten exactly when. We took five grand and we spent it on some branding. Um, and it's the best five grand we ever spent. And the reason, you know, it's not a lot of money. Um, we didn't do a full brand, but what the reason to do that was we consciously made the decision and said, okay, anything that comes, anything that goes out from us or from this company has got to look a certain way. It's got to have a certain feel and it's got to become recognizable as one project. So we spent that money, we got a logo and, you know, a little bit of a, a little bit of a kind of a PowerPoint template, not the content, obviously that's ours, but it meant that from the very beginning, everything that went out had a certain feel off it. So I mentioned already Google um, slide deck or pitch deck, you know, and you'll see there's a, there is a kind of a standard format. So, you know, that that's easy enough to do. you got to hit those kind of key sweet spots. I think, I think it's got to look a certain way though. I think it's got to look, investors have to get an impression because quite often the, they won't be meeting you first. They'll be getting this slide deck, right? And they get lots of these. So I think it needs to do two things. It needs to create this impression of, of you and the company. Um, and it also needs to tell a story quickly. I think if they're looking at a slide deck, as they often are just by themselves, 
and I don't know if there's five or 10 slides or whatever in it, they need to get the message of what you're trying to get across as well. So I think we would have spent a lot of time at the start of kicking a, kicking a slide deck around because it's easy to overcomplicate it, you know, and it's, and we're in a quite a complicated technology space, right? So we're, you know, we're trying to tell a story and, and get the market opportunity and what's going on there. So I think you need to spend a lot of time doing that. And if you do, I think it actually, it, it, it definitely pays off. Um, and we, you know, you mentioned executive summaries. We, we started out with the slide deck, the big slide deck, and then we could actually tailor that to whoever we were going to. We could easily create a one slide summary if you wanted to. We could create a non-NDA version if we wanted to. We could have a very detailed one, but it all had a, well, to our mind, all had a one project feel off it, right? Um, and subsequently we did actually get that feedback from several people saying, you know, oh, we didn't invest forever, but oh, by the way, you know, your slide decks were, were really good, you know. Now I know that might sound like soft and it is a little bit, but I, but it, again, it, it, it forms into the bigger picture, I think in the investor's mind. So I think people need to absolutely need to get their slide deck right. I've seen, I don't know, hundreds of slide decks, some of them absolutely amazing. And some of them, you know, just you don't even, you don't have any clue really what the, what the opportunity being presented here or it's, you know, it's, it's pretty basic. So I think as particularly now in this day and age, there's a lot of software out there, you know, you can pretty quickly put a nice slide deck together. So I, I think that's pretty important. That was excellent entrepreneurial advice. So thank you so much. Fionn, I would like to thank you again for your time, for your storytelling on this podcast, for highlighting Ireland, for highlighting Germany and Christoph in Munich, for highlighting one projects and congratulations again on raising 17 million split both with VCs as well as grant money and the education that we received on both of those. We wish you luck, obviously, putting that money to work and actually going through the operations that you have to deliver on now. It's that. Um, T- t- 25 million sorry 25 million. <laughs> 18, 18 million in, in vc and then uh, seven and a half in, in grant sorry just to be even, no even even better <laughs> I, I love the correction it's even more money you got to put to work now so congratulations again on that uh fiona hart co-founder and ceo of one projects thank you very much for your time this is the medtech money podcast series where we demystify raising and investing capital thank you fiona thanks giovanni pleasure Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.